Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, and with me as ever is Professor Alan Jameson. You doing all right, mate? Hello, you've reached the professor. I'm sorry I'm not available to take your call right now. If you leave a message after the beep, I will get back to you. What? How long for? Two months. Hey. Beep. Establishing Holtzman wave link with DSSV pressure drop. Link established. Audio logs received. Playing audio log one. Hey Tommy, how's it going? Thought I'd better fill you in on what I'm doing. I'm off on the ship. I'm in Guam and we've got 88 days to go. It's a long one this one, thanks to our friend COVID. Arrived in Guam okay, everyone's good. Because of COVID, we are going to go all the way to the Philippines without ever touching the Philippines. So we've got a big long transit over there. We're going to do two dives to Deep's Point and the Philippine Trench. And then we're going to go looking for the wreck of the USS Johnson DD-557. We're going to come back to Guam. Then we're going to go to the Mariana Trench, do some dives on Challenger Deep, Serena Deep. And then we're going to spend... I don't know, something like 16 days going down in the Southern Hemisphere and spend another five weeks down there. I'll save that for another podcast, but I'll be in touch. I'll interview somebody at the bottom of the sea. End of message. Hi, Dr. Heather Ritchie. Uh, I just thought I'd give you a call uh, to see if you wanted to chat about recent deep sea news, maybe loudly and, and clearly into a, a microphone. Tom, are you trying to trick me into doing a podcast? <laughs> He's abandoned me. He's gone to sea and I need a co-host. Oh dear. Just as well you called me. This is the first you've heard. Absolutely. I had no idea. <laughs> Don't you spoil the podcast magic. <laughs> Suspension of disbelief, please. <laughs> Having a look at what's been going on recently in deep sea news, one that caught my eye was some deep sea bacteria, it turns out, are invisible to the human immune system. I think my gut reaction, I mean, I think I probably fell for the sort of almost clickbaity nature of that as a title because I think I, I read that and I was like, I am very surprised. And then I read the paper and I was like, no, I am not surprised. <laughs> Some creative reporting and trying to get it scary. The gut reaction when you see the headline is, oh, well, this is it. You know, th this is the next thing that's going to kill us. But actually, when you read the paper, it's this is super useful and we're going to use this to learn so much. <laughs> Immediately, you're like, oh, well, if I ever come in contact with these, uh, I'm going to die. It's the Andromeda strain. Yeah. When are we going to come in contact with these? Your immune system is finely tuned to your most likely environment. And the deep sea is not mine nor yours most likely environment. So we'll probably be fine. <laughs> For these bacteria to flourish, they need extreme pressure and extreme cold. Oh, Environmental you're already stress. Dead. Already yeah, long dead. <laughs> so what it was was we've got sort of two immune systems. We've got one that's learned and very specific and one that's quite generalist. And so there's lipopolysaccharides on the surface of bacteria and that they, they were thought to be quite ubiquitous and our immune system responds to those. But they found 50 microbe strains from 3000 meters in the Phoenix Island protected area. 80% of those were invisible to one or two of the common lipopolysaccharide pattern recognition receptors. So it wasn't even mm -hmm. a complete blindness. It, it was a reduced sensitivity. So it's not as scary as it sounds because there's no way these things are actually going to be able to live in our bodies and infect us. But it's going to be really useful for future immune research. The partial recognition would allow vaccinations to tailor their response level. So there's certain vaccinations which in theory work, but they cause such a high immune response that that actually makes you quite unwell. You know, it's, it's not a viable mass vaccination thing. But 
because of this lower response rate, you've got a dial now you can adjust. And so you can actually elicit a subtle immune response to this specific marker now. So it's rather than being scary and rather than be like, this is what's going to kill us now, it's actually going to be great for research because we've now got this dimmer switch essentially for the immune response. I'm sure I read an article where some of the authors were discussing it and they said it's one of those ideas that just pops into your head that's like, well, why don't we try it? I'm sure in the article they, they said like, yeah, I don't know why we didn't expect them to be different, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's one of those ideas where you're like, retrospectively, you're like, why have we never tried this before? But also, yeah. I would never have come up with this in a thousand years. So sometimes you just need that little spark. <laughs> yeah, and, and the importance of like blue sky research, because mm. you couldn't have got a grant to do that. The sort of crux to a lot of stuff. You're right, like this sort of that blue sky having where you just have conversations and boats are a hundred percent the best place mm. to have conversations that bring random ideas that are actually really really great because it's everyone when you work together in an office everyone is often either sat next to people who do similar work to themselves or everyone is really focused on their own work so sometimes being on field work where you i mean you still obviously work really hard when you're doing all the sampling, but you have that sort of downtime in that evening time where you don't go home, <laughs> you're living with these people. So you start to have sort of conversations that you maybe would never mm. have had in an office environment. And folk get nosy, they get curious about other people's experiments. And then they're sort of like, oh, you know, you could, you know, it, it, you end up on a total tangent, something you'd never come up with because you never really cross paths with this person. Yeah. And I think especially when it's people from different disciplines, they, they ask different questions. And I think it, as much as people really want to, to do interdisciplinary work, I, sometimes it can just be hard to have those opening conversations about it. Like you, sort of, you, you almost sort of don't know where to start. So I think being on a, a boat yeah. or some kind of field work where you just have like, in together. yeah, you have a thing and you're like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, what were you thinking about it? And you're like, oh, well, actually I, I was thinking about this. And you're like, oh, I study using deep sea things that has this sort of direct human link to it. Yeah, for, the, for that usual like, like, why should we study the deep sea? What's in it for me? Exactly. I assume you also get this a lot. People will say like, well, how does that link to humans? And of course, for a lot of researchers like myself and um, you, a lot of it is gauged towards understanding natural worlds, understanding like ecosystems and processes rather than necessarily trying to link it to something like human health. I get a bit defensive. Yes. Yeah, I, I get a little <laughs> bit like, you know, it's a natural world. It doesn't owe you anything. It doesn't have to be useful for you. <laughs> but that doesn't, that doesn't work very well. So I've been trying to temper that. We're only really starting to understand just how helpful and useful the deep sea is for us to learn about ourselves and everything else on Earth and how everything sort of links together. Yeah, even being totally selfish, you need the deep sea. It, it's most of this planet. If the deep sea was gone, it's going to affect you personally. <laughs> Absolutely, personally, everyone who's listening to this, it will affect you. <laughs> it's coming for you, the deep sea. <laughs> <laughs> the deep sea is coming. Playing audio log two. Today's interview is with Mr. Tim McDonald. Hello, everyone. Hello, Tim. Nice to be here. Yeah, this is not your normal interview. We're not doing this over the phone. Uh, we're actually doing this one in person. Yeah, I'm sitting, sitting yes. inside a 1.8 meter diameter sphere. We are. We are both sitting inside a massive titanium ball. 
<laughs> and where are we, Tim? We are currently 10,020 metres below sea level. We are 10,020 metres. We are at the very bottom of the Philippine Trench. What does the bottom of the Philippine Trench look like? Well, it's very flat. It is. Very silty. It is. A bit of trash down there. Quite a lot of trash. Garbage. Yep. In the European like. My favourite piece of garbage was the big, massive pink plastic bag. I quite like the plastic bag that had a big eco-friendly sign on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were chasing that one. It was like, oh, it's got a massive jellyfish over there. <laughs> no, it's not. It's an eco-friendly plastic bag. Lots of uh, sea enemies. Lots of tracks. Along Burrows. Lebenspuren. Lebenspuren, yes. Lots of Lebenspuren. Yeah. Burrows. My favourite one was the anemones named after. After the Galathea. Which, uh, which was? So the reason why we're diving this particular site is my doing. This is, oh, well, well before we talk about the Galathea, we should talk about the fact that you are now officially the deepest diving Australian of all time. I am, as of today. Thank you, Alan. That's all right. For bringing me along for the ride. I think I thank you for bringing me along on the ride. Yeah, well, you chose it. Yeah. All right, we're all heroes in this stuff. We are. <laughs> Together. <laughs> Two heroes. At Two the heroes of hanging out at the bottom of the sea in a massive titanium ball. <laughs> One of the reasons why I picked this particular site to go, this is not necessarily the deepest point in Philippine Trench, which is one of the other incentives for coming. It's about 60 miles north of the deepest point. I chose this site because almost 70 years ago to the day the Galathea, the Danish Galathea expedition came by here and they shot a trawl at 10,000 metres. And the significance of that trawl is that they recovered rocks on those rocks they had small sea anemones on it, which proved categorically once and for all that life did exist at 10,000 metres, so that's the significance of that. The leader of that expedition, Anton Brun, on the way back from the Philippines stopped off in Indonesia and Jakarta and wrote a letter to Nature explaining that particular find, so we thought it would be cool to pick that as a dive site. And we got to see those anemones. We got to see them alive. Indeed. Which was very, very cool. Almost 70 years to the day. And Anton Brun later went on, for about two years later, he, he was the first person to coin the word Hadel. Which is where we just were. Yes. Which where we still are. We are. <laughs> we are. We are both. And the next twist to that tale is that one of the other expedition members was <coughs> Torben Wolf, who unfortunately died a few years ago, but he was the last surviving member of the Galathea, and he was the first person to publish a paper on, on the Hadel community and so on and so on. And shortly, over the last few years of his life, we and him used to write letters to one another and I used to send them papers and stuff like that and he sent me a hand copy of something he published or a paper copy of something he published in 1976 which is a, a book of illustrations from taken from the Pro Expedition I was quite proud he gave me that because it was his own personal copy so I have that with me right now in the summary as a kind of tribute to Torben's contribution to, to Hedl Science which is kind of cool anyway, less about me and more about you Tim Tim, how many sub-dives have you done now deeper than a thousand metres? Three are you including this one? Yes. <laughs> Does the depth matter? No, not really. It just takes a lot longer to get there. You, need yeah. more, you just need more snacks. A long haul flight. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> even more movies. There was drinks served, though. There was drinks served, yeah. Courtesy of Tyser. Yes. So we were given a little surprise. So we used the very high technology expensive underwater telephone to, to text the surface and back a few times and realised that they had left us a little something in the summary. And that was can you do it in your best Austrian accent? Strudel schnapps. <laughs> hey, what was it? Schnapple. Schnapple time. Schnapple time. So our Austrian chef has uh, given us some schnapps. 
or in the summer before on the way back up, and we've just had a little one now to get us in the mood for interview. A little celebratory, bottom of the ocean, deepest diving, Australian, deepest. second deepest diving Brit. Sorry. But the first British person to get to 10,000 metres twice. Indeed. So there you go. There you are. Wham. Most repetitive deep diving Brit. Most persistent <laughs> deep diving Brit. On other matters, what, have we, what else have we done this trip? I mean, we've got three hours to get back to the surface, so we've got a long time to chat. But There's a lot of chat to be had in there three is a hours, lot of chat. if we can survive it. Yeah. Big discovery last night, though. Yes, we discovered the deepest diving, deepest jellyfish in the world. Yep. Previous record holder being... Alan Jameson, professor. And Tim McDonald. Oh, indeed. Yes, that was surprisingly. Yeah, that was us last year. Huh? Personal best. Yes. So, anyway, uh, two nights ago, we filmed a fish, uh, a jellyfish, 10,000 metres, which is 1,000 metres deeper than our previous record of 9,000 metres. There you go. Deepest jelly is in the Philippines. And last night, we found Filipino snailfish. Oh, uh, yes, we did. Whole new population of fish, new species. Whole new species. It's kind of cool. Today, when we drank. This expedition snapples. was the first time. We put manned submersibles to the bottom of the Philippine Trench. Yep. Landed appointments. It's been quite a week. It's been a hell of a week. We're not done yet. We don't get to go home for another two months. <laughs> <laughs> We've got quite a few miles to do between now and then. Helen and I are going to get to know each other very well in this tiny little titanium's titanium sphere. Yes. Very quick. It's just our little home. Alan says big titanium ball. I say small titanium sphere because it gets real small in here. Nah, it doesn't. There you go, Tom. I told you I'd interview somebody at 10,000 meters, making us officially the deepest podcast, I think. Anyway, very cool. Great stuff. That dive was also known as the Adventures of Veggie Mate and Haggis. What an amazing experience. Very, very cool. Loved it. So, yeah, uh, that's us wrapping up, really, uh, on the deep dives in the Philippine Trench. We're going to move on and go and see if we can find the USS Johnson. I shall be in touch. Bye. End of message. The next news story. This might be one of my absolute favourite papers of all time. I'm so giddy about this because it touches on quite a few things that are close to my heart. When we're bringing up, say, the, the snailfish in particular, they're really delicate, they're really gelatinous, and at the molecular level, they're adapted to be living under that pressure. And so when I bring them to me, we have to work really, really quickly to take samples. We often work in a cold room, but at the molecular level, this specimen is disappearing before my eyes. It's breaking down before my eyes. And I used to find that really sort of humbling. I think Alan's quoted me on this a couple of times. I think it ended up in the Deep Sea Fear paper. But my, my sort of take home was, I will never be in the same place as this fish. For us to be in the same place at the same time, one of us has to be dead because we come from such different worlds. And that was like my romantic side being like, oh, isn't the deep sea amazing? I could cry. That's so sad. <laughs> but I, I'm totally forgetting that a lot of the abyssal fish, at least, have pelagic juvenile stages. So as larvae, mm. they're in the shallow waters. Jeff Millison, who's a marine biologist and photographer in Kona, Hawaii, has got involved basically with this new hobby called blackwater photography. So it's, it's a recent addition to sort of scuba diving, basically, where you go out into the plagic zone, you've got your camera rig sort of set up for macro photography, and you take pictures of the fish larvae and basically the plankton. You take pictures of the animals in the plankton, you know, over this incredible backdrop at night when the, uh, the deeper animals start to rise. And they're just the most amazing photographs of deep sea fish. There's somebody scuba diving next to a Bassacetus larva. Like, this is a thing that lives at five, 6,000 metres deep when it's an adult. 
and you're this there, is your and you're there with it. it. <laughs> and it's it's the thing I wish I could do. It's the thing, and it's possible. These hobby divers are experiencing deep sea fish in their larval form, which is poorly documented. Firsthand, they're getting to swim with deep sea fish, and so I just got absolutely giddy over it. And on the back of that, we tend to know these animals from trawls, from from pelagic mm-hmm. trawls. And again, there's the usual preservation issue, and particularly in the in the pelagic, in the plankton animals, there's all these delicate filaments. There's all these incredible ornamentation to the fins that just gets destroyed and lost by that. So not only are they getting to swim with these animals, we're seeing behavior, we're seeing just how delicate and incredible they really are, we're seeing color, we're seeing weird associations, like uh, one uh, larvae had a adaptation to the pelvic fins, which th- then turns out it uses to hold onto the bell of a jellyfish and like hitch a ride on a jellyfish. That's amazing. I'm just bl- <laughs> I'm just blown away and they're so, so beautiful. The colors, I, it's it's all the stuff I'm trying to preach. It's all the like, our perception of the deep sea is shaped by what we do to it, by mm. the damage we do to the animals when we bring them up and preserve them. And here they are just being spectacular. Like the, the bony-eared ass fish, which gets made fun <laughs> of, it's got the smallest brain-to-body ratio of, of any animal. It's a, you know, it's like the blobfish. It gets made fun of in its adult deep sea form. People mm. are scuba diving with this animal as a juvenile, and it's beautiful with all these big ornamental fins and ah, I just I got totally giddy on this paper, so I'm definitely going to put this in the links. And it's it's beautiful. It's it's the deep sea as it feel, should be viewed. I can feel the love you have for this. <laughs> it's just I, went from, I went about. from almost crying at this melting snailfish <laughs> to being like my heart could burst. Do you feel like you've been you've been like cheated out of this out of your life for like years now, not knowing that you could have you could have been doing this the whole time. These these are divers going out and they're really into their photography and they're just getting really good pictures of really interesting animals. And they're seeing things no one has seen before and getting the scientific mm. community really, really excited. That the best analogy I can think of, it's like I'm some like NASA scientist who's obsessed with Mars, and I'm finding out that a group of people as a hobby have been going to Mars on the weekend and walking around. <laughs> I'll put links to the paper is beautiful. There's a New York Times article. If you ask very nicely and they don't get totally overwhelmed, uh, there's an incredible Facebook group. And yet again, it's just people meeting up and realizing something is important. And it's that pure discovery science with no like plan initially. It was just like, whoa, you've been doing this. Playing audio log three. Morning, Tom. Just to let you know, about a week or so after the adventures of Haggis and Vegemite, uh, we did, in fact, find the wreck of the USS Johnson. Quite a humbling experience, quite a sad thing to see. If anyone doesn't know the story of the USS Johnson, I suggest you Google it. It's a story of extraordinary bravery and tragedy. But from a scientific perspective, it was really, really fascinating. It was a, a whole destroyer that was sunken in the, in the Second World War, and it's been, it's been down in the Philippine Trench now for over 70 years. It's technically the deepest shipwreck in the world. It's at about 6,227 metres. And the staggering thing I took away from from that and seeing that is the just scale of damage on the seafloor. This ship came down 6,000 metres and then shot across the seafloor for about 750 metres and gouged out an enormous trench within the trench and it looked like it happened yesterday. The sediment doesn't cover. I'm thinking going back to the whole deep sea mining thing about how long it takes the seafloor to recover. Well, basically the sediments at 6,000 metres don't even look like they're showing any sign whatsoever of recovering after 70 years. We did the first dive and we didn't find the wreck. But what we did find was another four Dumbo octopus. 
only ever seen before in the Java Trench in the Indian Ocean, and there they are in the Philippine Trench in the North Pacific Ocean. So four Dumbos, and because we like to keep things super squiddy recently, we also found the first ever squid hail deaths. It was a magna pinnid, or the big fin squid, a juvenile, so it didn't have the big ridiculously long legs at that point, or arms if you like. Uh, but there you go, first hail squid ever, Tommy. Another record. End of message. In order for me to understand the complexities of genetics, uh, I kind of understand it as a tool and the things that it helps me, well, the questions that it helps me answer, but I have no idea how to do it and of the wider potential, of the wider things that can be learned. I'm no use at all, so Heather, as an expert, can help me. And we are joined by newly minted, brand new. She's been on the show before, but she's different now. She's changed. Dr. Johanna Weston, who's recently completed a Viva. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I know. I feel like a fresh baby scientist now. <laughs> We've gushed a little bit before because we're, we're immensely proud of you on the team. What's your current species count? How many new species have you described? Officially, it's four, but one of them is still impressed, so it's still secret. Oh, a secret species. There's a genus in there as well, isn't there? Because pe people go their whole career without naming a genus. I know, and it happened to be one of my first ones. So maybe I just started off too big. And so it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> what is the process of describing a new species? Like how, how do we go about doing that? Ooh, that's a really good question. I mean, it's kind of like, how do you birth a child? Because in a way, like a new species is like your science child, and you feel very responsible for it. And there's a lot of pressure associated to, you know, name it correctly and do it justice and bringing it into the world. And it carries your name forever as well. So everyone will know it's your fault. It does. There's a few kind of key steps. So one, you've got to have some specimens in front of you. You've got to do the work to decide like, oh, it has not been described before. And the work that you do could be visually, it looks different than other ones that are described. Genetically, it's different. So you've got to determine its differentness or its uniqueness. And then you've got to capture that uniqueness into a manuscript. And so that's collecting data on how it looks. You make really beautiful scientific drawings, which when I had started getting into it, you gave me great advice, Tom. You said scientific illustrations are like scientific caricatures. So you're not giving it a like-for-like -like look, but you as the scientist illustrator are trying to capture the essence and the key features um, for the next person, you know, generations that'll start looking at it. Then you write everything up, send it to a journal, go through the peer review process. But once it's published, then you can actually talk about the name that you've given that species. There's weird secretism to the name, isn't there? You, you cannot use that name until it's fully published and, and you'll invalidate the name if you use it too early. Exactly. Which the, I think the purpose behind that, so it's this international rules, stands for international... I-Z-U-N. Even the thing itself just refers to itself as the code. And it's this enormous document. It's available online. I'll include it in the links. It's this enormous document and it reads like a legal document. It's the, it's the internationally agreed upon 
criteria for naming a new species. And it doesn't feel scientific. It feels legal. The whole thing to me felt a lot like um, a patent. So so filing a patent, filing mm, something yes. new, you've got to identify what's already there, what's already been done. So similar patents. You've got to really specifically point out the things that make your design different from all the others and what you're essentially protecting. What is the thing that makes it different? And you have to describe that in enough detail so that another person can see that. It's not enough to say, I'm the expert and I say it's so. You have to give other people reading enough to see the difference as well and essentially train people to spot your new species. And I think the big difference comes, you have to place it within the tree of life. So that's that's the biological part. That's the, the separate part, which I've actually found really difficult. And that's sort of where, where genetics certainly comes in because it can be quite separate from describing a new species. Quite often you can say, this, this, and this is different from this, this, and this. So it is a new species. But when you come to actually place that in a genus and place that within the tree of life, it's like a whole separate issue. It's a whole separate job. Yeah. So some species are really easy to place into that into the tree of life. Oh, it fits really nicely here. And there's other ones that it looks like it would fit here, but actually the DNA helps give us another set of data that suggests it might be placed somewhere different, which that's how my new genus Civifractura came about, that this new species looked like it should fit into this genus called Tectobaliopsis, except for one little character, which consulting with other experts in the field, we were struggling to decide how to best describe this character. So actually, it's first palm, so kind of like how it would grab food, the shape of it. And then genetics gave us a window into placing it in a different part within the family, in a part that hadn't been named yet. So we were faced with maybe two conflicting sets of information. So how it looked and what the genetics were kind of telling us. And so we decided to create a new genus, knowing that maybe morphology didn't give us the full picture, or our eyes just couldn't capture that difference. It's really interesting to think of placing things, almost like if you're building a jigsaw. Because when you, when you build a jigsaw, you have both the shape of the jigsaw piece, and you have what's on the jigsaw piece. So you have like the color or the pattern, whatever. And it's easier to place something when more of the jigsaw around that has been completed. So sometimes it's really easy to match up a piece because the shape and the color matches perfectly. Whereas sometimes if you think of maybe the shape being the morphology and the color being the genetics, sometimes maybe one is enough to give you an idea of where it should be and you need the second to help you along. And then sometimes if you're building a part of the jigsaw that's nowhere near anything that's been done before, even having both those pieces of information, it's still not entirely clear exactly where it should sit, which is why sometimes species get renamed either at species level or genus level, or sometimes even higher, like groups can move around the more that we start to build up um, the picture from all the jigsaw pieces. That's an amazing analogy. Yeah, that's really amazing. I'm so ripping that off. It's yours. You're welcome to take it. I think it's important to be able to collect both sets of information. The more information you can get, maybe it doesn't help you place that piece that 
day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do Absolutely. the bare minimum to create a new species, or you can be forward-looking and you know, help scientists in hundreds of years' time to better place it. You can give as, as much corners to your piece as you possibly can. And they're, they're two totally different skills as well. So I have absolutely no skills in terms of identifying morphology that's useful for taxonomic description, whereas both of you have. And then the flip side of that is that I have the sort of genetic skills to look at that, whereas like Tom was saying earlier on, that's not something that he has the expertise in. So the work that Joanna's been doing has been really pooling both of those sets of skills together, and which is sort of how the field has been going. And do you feel that, that that's where the field's going to continue to move is, is using both of these skills and sort of overlapping them? Yeah, so I feel like I've maybe Venn diagramming you two in your work and finding that like middle ground. So you, you can say it. You can say that you can do everything each of us can do individually. You can say you're yeah. better than us. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I can do everything <laughs> and not as good. Uh, oh, don't pack that Hedl. is definitely not true. <laughs> I think that's where fields are going. And I think that's where Hadel science, or deep sea science is going and should continue to go. I think it's really important to be able to see and understand what you're looking at and then knowing what extra data you can collect to help see that bigger picture. And I think since these samples, they're so hard to collect, like we should squeeze as much information out of them as we can. Traditionally, there's a bit of conflict between these these two arms. And I know a lot of traditional sort of morphological taxonomists are wary or skeptical of genetics. But I've always, just like you say, basically, I've always felt that they're complementary tools. And, you know, you get convergent evolution, you get things that look really similar, but they've come from totally different directions. I see genetics as, you know, along with CT scanning, along with microscopy and all the all the new methods that are available to us now that say Linnaeus and the founders of taxonomy didn't have access to. I, I see it as another tool to allow us to explore these species and where they lie. Do you, you feel this is a, a team effort? This is a harmony? They're just not individually giving us a full picture. And I think for me, being the, on the genetic side of it, I find that the morphology, especially things that have been described in the past that we're now trying to backstamp some genetic data onto, the morphology is like the hypothesis. You know, you're saying, according to the morphology and the investigations I have done, I believe this is closely related to this other species. And then the genetics is a way of, of one layer of testing it. And either the genetics can say, yeah, I totally agree with that, in which case that's cool. We've proved the hypothesis that these two species are, are linked together. Or sometimes the genetics will say, actually, maybe not, but that's not to say the morphology is wrong. It's just to say that we're not sure. So maybe we need to do more investigations um, using a variety of different tools. Just having one sequence isn't going to tell you anything. So you've got to build up to a hundred sequences from a hundred different species or something like that in order to get enough information to leverage the information that you can gain from genetics. So when we talk about sequencing a species, like this is where I'll hand something to one of you two and just be like, do, do your magic and tell me what it says. So what is what is the physical process? What is the method when I give you a little bit of a tissue sample from a fish I'm having a really hard time with. So you hand off your fish tissue or an amphipods, you hand over an amphipod, and we're going to take that and with amphipods, chop off their head because 
that's a good place to get they have a meaty good face. tissue from. They have a yeah, meaty face. very meaty face. So we'll basically digest that to break open the cells and do a bunch of like different sort of washing procedures so that you just have the DNA and you wash away everything else. So you're washing away proteins, cell walls or cell membranes, like all of those bits. And you're just left with your DNA. Panning for DNA gold. Basically. Mm -hmm. So now that you've got your gold of DNA species IDs mostly do like what's called DNA barcoding. We're just looking at one little, little, little bit. So about 600 base pairs. So that's like 600 letters in the code, essentially. Yeah. So if you think of the whole genome as like an encyclopedia, if you were to compare an entire encyclopedia to a different encyclopedia, you would be there all day because there's too much information. So what you want to do is you want to look in one specific volume in one specific chapter and you're going to read one sentence and then compare how those sentences are different across encyclopedias. And, and based on your knowledge and understanding, you've got a bit of a feel for where is the best place to look to see the difference. So you're you're not diving right into the middle. You're looking for like the copyright page or the publishing date and things like that, things that are most different between the different dictionaries. Yes, and ones where we've looked before. So that's really useful is that we make good use of data banking. So anytime you sequence something and you want to publish the sequence or work that you've done with the sequence. So I haven't described any species. So like I use the sequences for looking at how different populations connect. But even then, if you want to use that information, you have to publish it online. So you publish it in a data bank. Once it's published, that becomes available for everyone else to use. So it's a really good resource. So then we don't necessarily have to buy all these encyclopedias. We have one that we've looked at, but we can just go online and say, I want to see what this one looks like and what that one looks like. And then we can just download all that information. Um, and then we can visually look at it or we can do analysis and look at it and then we can see how all those pieces all fit together. Like um, Joanna was saying that sometimes you need to preemptively do that work. So you might have a species that doesn't have any other, like it doesn't have any sequences in a database that looks like what you want. It's that piece floating by itself. Yeah, you have to keep adding and then over time, so even within the last so five to ten years, the number of sequences available for deep sea amphipods has grown really quite a lot because everyone started doing it. For us, it's it's usually samples that we've gathered from recent cruises, but also places like natural history museums, they'll have older samples, maybe not so much for amphipods, but certainly things like fishes. And depending on how they've been stored, we can even take some tissue sample from those and, and we can sort of go almost like back in time and start making barcodes for things that we've had for ages, but we just didn't know that we could do that or the technology at the time wasn't there for us to do that. So we can sort of reach out in a bunch of different ways to start building this resource that yeah becomes public data. So anyone at home, if you want to look at some sequences just because you want to, you can do that. <laughs> Browse through them. Uh, yeah, of course. When we've got our little DNA nugget from the specimen itself, from the sample, you do something called amplification? Yeah, so it's called... PCR amplification or polymerase chain reaction. If we're in our encyclopedia, we know exactly the part that we want to get. We know that there's a few words before and after that sentence that we're trying to grab. So we make what are called primers to basically find those sets of words. 
and then make millions and millions of copies or thousands and thousands of copies of that sentence. And that that's quite a biological process, isn't it? You you're using the the enzymes and the the natural processes that DNA replicates with and even the things that cut and sort DNA you're sort of incubating it. You're like fermenting DNA and growing it. Yeah, you're growing your own little strand of DNA. I mean, this is used throughout science. Like now it's in the general lexicon of you've got your PCR COVID test. And so what they're doing with that is getting a little swab of your tissue to see if you've got this bit of COVID in you or not. When you've got your your big bundle of DNA, what what happens then? How do you sort of read that or interpret it? So then you send it off to a sequencer. Basically, the sequencer then translates it into getting your combination of T, G, C, and A's. And so then you've got your sequence to work with. Once you have your sequence, you can compare it to see if it has a match with any similar organisms. And then you can grab a bunch of sequences and build a tree to see how closely related your new set of sequences are to known ones. That's computationally really heavy, isn't it? You guys get to play with supercomputers. Yeah, it depends how many species you want to look at, how many individuals. So we talk about barcoding as sort of amplifying up a sentence, and we want to know what that is. But sometimes one sentence maybe doesn't give us enough information, or it's maybe not quite showing us what we thought it would be. So the best way to be using a sentence, a barcode, is to look at multiple ones. So maybe we say we want to take a sentence from chapter one, one from chapter three, and one from chapter eight. And then we can compare all of them. So when you start adding all of these data sets together, it can become quite computationally heavy. And there is a whole bunch of maths that I cannot explain that <laughs> that uses the, the information in it. And it, it sort of decides which it thinks which ones are more closely related based on the A, G, Cs, and Ts. Shout out to Linux. <laughs> it can do it so much faster than anything else. <laughs> but their IT departments hate it. Oh, so much hate. <laughs> but then it, it's not necessarily a strict match. It's not a case of it will pull apart a perfect, this is close related to this and this one is really far away. It's still an estimate. So it will say, I think based on the information you've given me, this is the best relationships. And you can perform analysis on that to say, okay, well, how confident are you that that's the correct configuration of it? And sometimes we can get really high scores. We can have pretty much 100% confidence. We can say A is most closely related to B and C is definitely further away. And then other times you can have maybe well, A is probably closely related to B. And then sometimes you can have really, really terrible scores, which essentially just means that the information is insufficient. Because it all sorts of floats in this hypothetical space, isn't it? It's all about relationships. It's all just relevant to each other. There's no absolute scale, really. And that can change depending on which barcode you're using as well. When we were working together, I remember thinking that you had a research assistant that you were horrible to and kept making work weekends and late nights. Because you kept talking oh, about Maxwell. like, I'll give the data to Maxwell. It'll be done by tomorrow. I was like, oh, this poor person is like working weekends and working overnight. And it turns out Maxwell was your supercomputer. Yes. Who's it named after again? James Clark Maxwell, who's a Scottish theoretical physicist. In his image, he's been doing all of our analysis over weekends and Christmas and everything else for us. His brain in a jar that you've been pumping data into. Absolutely. He does all of that analysis for us. Poor Maxwell. 
going back to like naming or describing a species and using these different tools. So we're comparing how one thing looks to the other, and there's a little bit of judgment that has to go on. But then also in genetics, there's a judgment of, is this tree giving me the best estimate? And then when you actually go to describe a species, putting a whole name and making it a fundamental unit. And I think that is an exciting and scary step. It's the closest we come to being absolutes. We, we talked about how careful scientists can be, but uh, I suppose one of the most decisive things we do is to name a species and then put our name after it. Welcome the future to prove us wrong. Yeah, and names are also uh, powerful as well. Like I've never named a species, but both of you have. How do you come up with the name that you give a species? I don't have a child, but I envision that it's very similar to when you're first naming your child. You have to look at it really closely and you cradle it and you say how beautiful it is. And you want to pick a name that really captures its essence. It's going to be with it for the rest of its life. Does it have to do something about the place that it came from? Was there someone really important that you want to honor? Is it something about how it looks? Or is it sort of a feeling or emotion that you want to capture? So my first one species was Eurothenes plasticus. So plasticus was the species name that we gave it. And that came from discovering that one of the 11 specimens that we had had a microfiber really similar to PET, which is the main polymer in plastic water bottles. And what was, I guess, crazy about this species is that before we knew about it, it knew us. And so by naming it Plasticus, gave a symbol for the pervasiveness of marine plastic pollution. So that seemed like a really fitting name for that species. Another species was Stephonic Sigma Cruz. Amphipods, they have seven legs. On those legs, they have six different appendages. Some of those appendages had this really beautiful sigmoid shape to them, which was kind of the defining feature of the species. And I just thought that the lines were so beautiful. Just the shape of it was gorgeous. So I wanted to encapsulate that in its name with Sigma being S shape and then Cruz being leg-like. So that seemed like a really fitting name. And then third species, Civifractura serendipii, the genus name, so it came from Walby Zenith Fracture Zone. And so Civifractura is recognizing the place that it came from, so citizen of the fracture. And then serendipia is a play on serendipity, which I think serendipity is really important in science, and it's been really important in my own life. These things that happen that seem meaningful uh, but also maybe random. And it's also the name of my favorite beer. So that name has just been really important to me. So I was proud to give that species that name and pay tribute to it with a beer. And was that a beer that particularly helped you describe the species? Uh, it didn't help me describe the species, but I did celebrate it with it afterwards. But it was my wedding beer. So instead of champagne, this beer, it's a 
sour beer from Euglaris Brewing in Wisconsin. And they only sell it in Wisconsin. And every time we go there, make sure that we have to pick up a pack. They're going to have to put an amphipod on their label now. I know. Have you told them yet? I have not told them. It's still on my to-do list. I'll definitely cash that in. Yeah, send them the link to the podcast. Other than sort of helping us to separate out separate species and to place them, what are some of the other things we can learn from genetic analysis? You know, we've spoken about using these barcodes of only looking at a sentence at a time and comparing them across species. What we can also do is we can then look at more. So we can say, right, actually, we want to look at the whole thing or a really, really large chunk of the genome, like all this data. And we can compare these to species that we know are similarly related. And we can also compare them to species that aren't. So one thing we could do is we know that we have these amphipods in particular that live at the very, very bottom of the sea. They're the deepest living invertebrate species. But amphipods are incredible. They're found really just about anywhere. They're found at any depths in the ocean. They're found at the intertidal. So if you've ever been rock pooling and you pull up a rock and there's a little squiggly thing moving around, good chance it's an amphipod. They're found in freshwater, they're found in rivers. So they have this really unique ability to have had all these adaptations that have allowed them to live just pretty much anywhere. So we can compare sort of shallow amphipods to deep amphipods and look which genes are similar, which genes have changes in them. And that can give us some idea about how these animals can survive at the deep sea at really deep um, levels with all this hydrostatic pressure. We can start to pick apart all of the bits that are really, really interesting. Um, And that, again, helps us understand sort of the extremes of life um, and how things have become adapted to the deep sea. And we can also look at things like we know that there are populations of amphipods in different trenches. So I think all three of us have done a lot of work on hadal trenches. Lots of them are quite far apart in terms of distance. You know, we weren't really sure how animals moved between them, if they could move between them, because it's also very difficult to observe in the deep sea. So we can't just sit around and follow an amphipod. So using molecular tools, looking at genetics, we can actually see whether there's connectivity between them, whether individuals move between populations or whether they're isolated in maybe one trench or maybe just one or two trenches. And that can be really important for things like protecting areas. So if you have an area where maybe one trench and there's a whole bunch of of species that live there and they don't live anywhere else, so they've, they've become so specially adapted to this one place and they've not had any mixing with any other populations, if that area that trench was to become destroyed in some way you would lose all of the species that live there there would be no recovering so that's really important for us to know and it gives us an idea of how fragile the populations can be or how resilient resilient to to changes if they have lots of populations that can feed into each other so yeah that's just a a couple of examples of the, the different kinds of things that we can do using molecular data um some of these we need a small amount of data. And it's, I mean, it is, as Joanna said, it can be difficult, especially with deep sea samples to get the kind of data that you want, but some are more readily available than others. So some of some of this could be quite expensive. You need really quite a lot of data, but some of it for maybe the barcoding stuff is a really nice, more 
economical alternative to do something using just small parts of the of the genome and not having to look at the at the whole thing. And one of the emergent technologies now is environmental DNA. So looking for things without even actually finding them, just looking for their DNA in the environment. Yeah, and it, that's a really useful tool because you don't have to try and capture everything because the idea behind the eDNA is that everything sort of sheds bits of itself, like scales come off and... Mucus and poop. All the good stuff. All the, <laughs> all of the, sec- all the secretions. <laughs> Um, and you should be able to pick them up. But when you do that, you you just sort of say, I, I want to look at that that one sentence and I want to look at it for everything that's in this water. That's where you then really need to rely on having a good database to match to. Because if you don't have a good database, you could have a, a whole bunch of sequences and you could say, oh, wow, in this area, we've identified 50 different species. But if you don't have a database that's attached to a physical specimen, that's not going to be that much help to you. It just, oh, yeah, I found it here and someone sequenced it over there, but we still don't know what it is. It could be a microbe. It could be a fish. I mean, we could usually detect at least the difference between a microbe and a fish, um, <laughs> but maybe not, not, not necessarily to something like species level. But there has been some deep sea eDNA work done. One study that looked at deep water fishes and they ground truthed it. So they did a trawl and they captured what they expect is a representation of what they would expect to find. And say they identified like 45 different fishes. When they did the eDNA, they identified 50 they maybe missed some from the ones they expected to be there, but also found other ones. But the overlap was really, really high. So it is a really useful tool. The past couple of years, it's become quite popular. So it's becoming more refined and we're sort of understanding more about the limits of it, but also the utilities of it as well. So I think that's going to be something we're going to continue to see a lot of in the coming years is eDNA. Confidence is building, isn't it? I I remember when it sort of first emerged, it was quite prone to error and there was a lot of refinement we needed of the method, but it sounds like some some really incredible things are being done with it now. Yeah, but that's the same for any developing, emerging technique. You know, nothing ever appears to you perfectly. But yeah, it's it's really developed over the past couple of years. And so it's it's also really good for stuff like the deep sea, where it's quite difficult to get samples. This could be a really useful tool. It's particularly good for for difficult areas. We worry about sampling bias a lot in the deep sea. Like a lot of our equipment is baited and we're only going to capture species that respond to bait. There's bound to be things we're missing. You're spot sampling as well. So you're sort of taking snapshots of very particular areas, it's quite difficult to know what they're doing when they're not feeding. Because again, with the baited stuff, most of the behavior that we see is feeding behavior. So we, it's sort of difficult to know how far they move in the interim when they're not at a bait site. And there are some particular issues to sampling, like specific to deep sea, isn't it? I, I remember we worked very hard to process samples as quickly as possible. And you had a really tough time sequencing them, didn't you, Heather? And, and pioneered some new methods. Yeah. So one of the main problems with trying to get good quality genetic samples 
is, as Joanna explained, when we do extractions, when we want to take the DNA out of the cells, we want to break the cells and we want to wash away everything we don't want and we just want to be left with our DNA. But when you do that, you're exposing the DNA to a not so hospitable environment. When it's in the cell, it's very, very happy. It's just doing its own little thing. It's replicating nicely. It's not bothered by anything. But when you take it out of the cell, it can become degraded, which just means that it starts breaking apart. When you first take it out of the cell, it will degrade a little bit. And over time, it just continues to degrade, which is why when we do these extractions, we then have to store them usually long term in freezers to try and slow down that degradation process. With the pressure change from taking samples from the deep sea up to the surface, what actually happens is a lot of the cells explode because of the, the change in pressure. So by the time we receive the samples on the surface, they've already had a lot of damage to the cells, which means that the DNA is already mostly floating around and beginning to break down quite quickly. And that also isn't helped by that most of the sampling happens in warm climates, which also helps to break it down. So whenever we get samples on deck, we really have to process them really, really as quickly as we can. I mean, it's not hopeless, obviously, because we've all managed to make good of the samples. I've had to come up with a bunch of sort of nifty ways to get around things. And I know that Joanna has also developed a whole bunch of protocols specific to samples that were stored in ethanol as well, because the ethanol does help to stop the degradation. But generally, that's more helpful if you have samples where there hasn't been cells that have already been broken down. So for the deep sea, really, if you want to do genetic stuff, you want frozen samples. It's just something that it's just an extra level of something that we need to consider or we need to tailor our expectations of what we can get out of it. Getting samples on board, it's what we want fundamentally, but I find it incredibly stressful. You've got to work so quickly and if something turns out to be new down the line and you're wishing like, oh, if only I'd got a few more photographs before I took the samples. But then, you know, the flip side of that is these samples are really degraded and I wish I hadn't wasted time taking photos. So you've got to, to make a snap assessment of which is going to be more valuable for this animal. And then it's just frantic. I, I find it incredibly exhausting. And quite often you're in a cold room as well and you're moving from a cold room well, into a cold room from like quite often a tropical Pacific environment. And so everything's getting humid and you're shocking your system because you're sweaty. And then you go into this like freezer. And yeah, I, I find it really intense. Like I, I'm usually quite exhausted after a, a processing session. Yeah, I think there is that that sort of immediate, <laughs> it's like panic because <laughs> I've got them. And now I absolutely need to not make a mistake. And I think it, it makes such a difference having a team of people who also know how to process certain kinds of organisms because different organisms will need different kinds of treatments. And when like a pair of hands is working in perfect unison with yours and like as soon as you need it, a sample vial appears and yeah, we, we end up quite yeah. a well-oiled machine. The reason you become so exhausted is because if it wasn't a race against the clock, you would easily spend several hours doing work that you do in about 40 minutes. <laughs> you sort of have to take notes alongside. So then of course, everyone has a fishy notepad because you can't stop and take off your gloves and make notes. You just have to go for it. So there's stuff everywhere. And then you sort of almost collapse at the end of it to be able to do the samples justice because it, it takes so much work and effort and so many people have to do work for you to be able to get those samples that you really want to make sure you can get the best and the most information out of them. Yeah, the samples are priceless and you 
you feel that, you feel the weight of that on you as you're trying to process. Just always trying to do the best you can with what you got. Absolutely. Of course, we need our official ending question, which is, uh, what is the best party you've ever been to, Johanna? Probably one of my favorite parties that I've been to, minus my wedding where I got to have my serendipity beer, uh, was the end of the Five Deeps expedition in London. And it was just, it was really formative for me to be part of the expedition. And it was great to be able to celebrate and bring everyone together because you don't always get to come back together with people. So it was nice to hang out and celebrate our accomplishments. Do a victory lap. Yeah. Dr. Johanna Weston, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I will be, uh, I'll be watching your career with great interest and probably asking you for a job at some point. Playing audio log five. Well, Tommy, I don't know how many days it's been now. It's probably well over a month, I would have thought. We just finished in the Mariana Trench. We did two dives to Challenger Deep. We did two dives to Serena Deep, uh, including the first ever ascent of an entire seamount at Hadel Depths. The base of it was around 7,700. The summit was around 6,800. And it was amazing, absolutely amazing. The thing we went looking for in, in Mariana in particular Serenity, and we actually found this in Challenger as well, were sulfur mounts. Where we're looking for sulfur, big yellow blobs of yellow loveliness. And we found them everywhere. Uh, if you go off the deepest point and start going up the slope, you find these great big mounts of sulfur. And we managed to get a sample of what we think is a bacteria mat at 10,760 metres deep. So that's now in the fridge, all bagged and tagged. Great stuff. And then we went across the other side, the southern slope, and did the sea mount, and we found more sulfur there. And enormous, great, big, huge tunicates attached to rocks. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to get you some visual imagery. But very, very cool stuff. Now we're just going to head south for about two and a half weeks before we do something else. But I'll be in touch and let you know how that little transit gets on. End of message. Hello, this is oceanographer Don Walsh. And I wanted to uh, tell you my personal story about genetic modification. It begins in 1993 in the former Soviet Union. The Cold War had ended when the USSR was dissolved in December 1991, just two years earlier, and today's Russia was born. And now Russia was opening up to the West. The question for them was, could there be opportunities for new business enterprises with Western companies utilizing the various technologies they had developed during the Cold War but were largely unknown in the West. So with the Russian cooperation, a technical assessment team was organized by the U.S. National Science Foundation. Its purpose was to look at undersea technologies in European Russia and find possible commercial opportunities. I was a member of the eight-person team that spent a week in Russia in May 1993. At that time, little was known in the West about their undersea systems, as the government tended to classify just about everything. The goal of this effort was to find joint business opportunities between Russian and Western companies. It literally was forging swords into plowshares. In Moscow, I visited the Kurchatov Research Center, which was the major nuclear power development organization in the USSR, both for land-based plants and those that go into submarines. Team member, retired Admiral Brad Mooney, was my companion. He had been chief of naval research and oceanographer of the Navy while on active duty. A fellow submariner, uh, we had both been involved with the Navy's deep submergence programs. 
At the Kirchhoff Institute, there were seven operating power reactors, including the first one in Europe that had been in operation since 1947. It was a busy place. After meeting with senior staff, Brad and I were given a tour of the center. At one point, we were taken into a large room and briefed on what was happening there. To our surprise, we found we were standing on top of an operating nuclear reactor. And looking at our guides, we noticed that no one was wearing a film badge to detect radiation dosage. As submariners with some knowledge of nuclear safety in the U.S. Navy, we were concerned and exited the place as soon as possible. Later, when we were back at our hotel, Brad and I had a couple of beers while we discussed the excitement of the day's events. Since we both may have received doses of radiation, we jokingly decided to not stand too close to each other as we might have constituted a critical mass that might lead to a small nuclear event. On the positive side, we agreed that since we would probably glow in the dark, that night lights were no longer needed in our homes. Well, perhaps all this chat was to cover up our concerns about possible excess radiation received that day some 28 years ago. But it's sort of like whistling in the dark as you go by the graveyard, a little graveside humor. But as for me, at age 89, I don't seem to have suffered from that exposure, although I do wonder why I have six fingers now on my left hand. Well, that's my personal story of genetic modifications. Until next time, thanks for listening. Playing audio log six. Morning, Tom. It's day 45 of 88, so we're just over the halfway point, which is wonderful, which coincides with a big long trans south and the halfway point of the Earth. So we crossed the equator the other day. It was quite a messy affair, as you can imagine. I was the beautiful bride of Neptune, uh, smoking hot, I might add. Very strange experience. Details of the crossing the line party would maybe be best shared quietly just between the two of us over a beer and not necessarily publicly broadcast on a podcast, but hey, there you go. Another weird thing, that was a good thing about the crossing. The, so far, the, probably the worst thing about the crossing is about 100 kilometers north of Indonesia. You've never seen so much plastic in my life. It was just horrendous. You couldn't even count it. There were bottles everywhere. There were rafts of debris just flown past the ship. Absolutely horrendous. The only saving grace of all that is once we started heading through Indonesian waters, you could get to see all the volcanoes and stuff. Very, very cool. It's one of these things that makes this job worthwhile. Parts of the world you never get to see. Beautiful stuff. A lot of plastic, though. Really odd. Anyway, I'm going to check out for this particular podcast, Tom, because I've got stuff to do. We're going to be diving in the North Australian Basin soon, and then we're going to start the next leg of this, the last five weeks, which is something pretty big. I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I'm going to save that for the next podcast. Hope it all goes well, Tommy. Bye-bye. End of message. For this episode of Tales from the High Seas, it's one that we personally experienced, Heather. We were talking about how rapidly you have to preserve deep sea samples, especially for genetic work. And we had fun time with a, a liquid nitrogen dewer. Well, it was on our trip up to, to New Caledonia, wasn't it? It was such a, a series of unfortunate events um, <laughs> that the whole trip was a bit of a series of, un, of unfortunate events. It started with good intentions that um, for genetic samples, we want to preserve the tissue really as quickly as possible. One of the quickest and best ways to preserve something is to snap freeze it in liquid nitrogen so you get 
canister is full of liquid nitrogen, and this is very, very high-tech science stuff, you put your genetic sample, your tissue, into a tube, and you put those tubes into a pair of nylon tights, and then you put the tights into the liquid nitrogen container, and then you, you leave them in until you've sort of done all the samples, and then once they've been snap frozen, you can transfer them to a freezer that's sort of minus 80 degrees. Or in our case, um, because we didn't have a minus 80 degree freezer, they were just all going to be stored in the liquid nitrogen dewer. And that really stops any degradation of the DNA that's in the sample. So you can get the best output from them. How many days were we at sea before there was a storm? About half a day? Yeah, a day? we didn't get much. <laughs> I hadn't got my sea legs. So I was I was being Sasha. I was barking like a dog into the toilet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was bad. Stuff came loose. Stuff was clattering around on deck. And one of the casualties was a duo full of liquid nitrogen, which then flash froze the deck and it was spectacular. And Yes, it was spectacular and very disappointing all at the same time. <laughs> but also deeply, deeply upsetting. <laughs> yeah, so I think the canister um, had become pierced by something that was rolling around on deck that shouldn't have been because the sea was so rough that some of the lashings had snapped. I think a box that had sort of roguely been roaming around on the deck had run into the dewer and it had pierced it. So all of the liquid nitrogen that was inside had sort of spewed out of the hole in the side of the canister and yeah, had frozen itself to the deck. At that point, we still hadn't actually reached New Caledonia because we were traveling from Auckland to Noumea. And we did a few drops in the South Fiji Basin. Yes. That's but right. only like four or five deployments, I think it was. And then we were... Yeah. So that was to the um, the New Hebrides trench. So I think we were heading to New Caledonia so that we could refuel and restock there. 28 metre long vessel across the South Fiji <laughs> Basin. Because why would you do it in anything else? Because it was only six crew and six scientists. So it was a really it was a intimate working relationship. And your relationship with the marine crew can make or break an expedition. Mm-hmm. You need them on your side. and No, and they're all fabulous people, especially on that trip. They, they really worked so very hard in such terrible conditions. So it was, was it about six days transit. It felt longer. It, it certainly did. <laughs> I know the captain was like, strapped into his chair with a, a sick bucket next to him for, for part of it. Because you could hear like plates in the galley smashing and um, everything had come loose that had never come loose before. Well, we had to use our bunk boards, didn't we? So we weren't thrown from our bunks. Yeah. And the washing machine, the barrel oh. came loose inside the washing machine. So we had to wash our clothes in the shower, like all good seafaring people do. But for in terms of the science, the, the biggest worry was that we now we were now out of a way to freeze and store genetic samples. We arrived in Numea and the poor agent had a real treat as, <laughs> as we came in. Oh, it's just a little boat with 12 people on it. Yeah, what could they possibly need? If I remember correctly, it was the only place that had liquid nitrogen was the hospital. And uh, their need was greater than ours, funnily enough. But this was also all in French. And none of us speak particularly good French. It's certainly not the kind of French... For highly technical terms, because you can bungle through with sort of common language. But when you're getting technical... I mean, this is how I ended up ordering a load of bags of party ice instead of dry ice. And when I tried to explain how this wouldn't do, the agent wiped it dry with a towel. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh no... It turned out there was one industry other than like medical and science that makes use of minus 80 freezers. And can you guess what it is? And luckily, <laughs> there's quite a lot of tourism on there. And it was ice cream. The production of ice cream uses a fair bit of flash freezing. And so I think that's how we got the minus 80. A small 
minus 80 freezer, which I have never seen in my life before because minus 80 freezers are normally huge, big cabinet freezers because they have to have all this insulation inside them. So they look really big from the outside, but when you open the door, it's something like only maybe 50-60% capacity of the freezer for actual storage. The rest of it is all insulation. And this one was the size of a mini fridge. Yeah, it was like a mini bar. A very, very cold mini bar. We took it to the boat and the first problem was that because we had come from a boat in New Zealand and we'd got this freezer from New Caledonia, the plugs were incompatible. Was it the first officer had to strip the plug off a lamp? A lamp gave its life so that we may freeze. It did. It did. And it turned on, but it didn't cool down properly. Like wasn't happy about it. Yeah, it was it was like I'm a freezer, but not the kind that you're looking for. Let me die. <laughs> and I think at that point the engineer decided that yeah, the problem was it was out of the coolant. It's freon, isn't it? It might be something different from minus eighty actually. I will believe you. Magic gas. Magic freezing gas. They had to go back to the port authority man and ask him to call the number that was on the like help guide for the freezer to see if they could get a replacement canister and a guy came and he looked at it and he said mm, maybe so we ended up having to stay an extra day in port because he was going to source us a canister which he did. Wasn't there a circuit board that needed to be jerry-rigged as well? Didn't the, oh, quite the ship's engineer like rebuild a circuit board on it? He did so much work that I'm not even sure it was the same freezer anymore. They did such a good job and like all the all the genetic samples were really dependent on this. And we kept the freezer in the wet lab because we thought it was the coolest place. We were in the Pacific. It was like 30, 35 degrees most days. Uh, the freezer being in the wet lab, it overheated and wouldn't keep at minus 80. So in the end, it got lashed to a bench that was lashed to the stairs and covered with a tarp. It had a little tent. It had its own little tent. It had its own special place, but it worked and we got some excellent samples. Well, this <laughs> so is why this is why you're good to your marine crews because they are amazing. If they're on your side and they're enjoying the work you're doing and you're all part of a team, they can do some amazing amazing things. Like this is just a crew of 6 and they repaired an incredibly intricate piece of equipment <laughs> and then built it, it a little house. We could house. not have done it. We could not have done it without them. No. It literally would not have been possible. And those samples turned out to be highly significant and have changed what we know about the deep sea. Absolutely, because that trench, I think there hadn't been those kinds of genetic samples from that location. So they, they were incredibly valuable. In the end, it relied on the boat crew and all of the very, very helpful people in New Caledonia who really went also above and beyond mm. to help source us something that we could use to do this extreme freezing with. Now it's a great story. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what the agent said to us? No. The agent was servicing sort of multiple vessels that come in and there's our 28 meter long vessel with 12 people on it that, oh, they just want some food and some fuel and then I'll send them on their way. It was an enormous mm -hmm. cruise liner come in with like thousands and thousands of people on board. And I can remember once everything was sorted, him pointing to the cruise liner and saying, you see that boat there with so many thousand people on it? You are more trouble than them. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and thank you. We take a vow and we leave. <laughs> <laughs> just waving at him as we leave the shore. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 
The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Playing audio log seven. So if you remember back to the Christmas special when we had Marvel on, I promised them I would do one thing and that promise was I would play the Halo Zone Express in the Halo Zone. And given I am a man of my word, here goes. What do you think, Tom? The loveliest song. Yeah. The Barons of High Energy Rock and Roll. My first introduction to the Barons of <laughs> High Energy Rock and Roll, and I proved especially below 6,000 years. It sounds all sweet better in the Halo Zone, doesn't it? Acoustic to the studios, yes. The big Tatsunian Bomb. Get ready for the drop hour. Yep. Get ready for the ear grab and pull down. Head bang. That doesn't work at a podcast. No. <laughs> and they can imagine her sitting yes. in a tiny ball of head bang <laughs> at the bottom of the ocean. That's it. <laughs> oh, wow. Over there. Over there. I'm loving it. Over there. <laughs> there you go, Marvel. I told you I was a man of my word. Transferring logs to podcast database. The Deep Sea Podcast Deep Submersible Special. Coming soon.